The reality is it's not only the Fed that works with yeah. imperfect data. Everybody does Absolutely. in the markets. And the real skill is the devil in the detail of understanding where we've been and where we're going. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to interview a true leader in housing finance, Jennifer McGinnis, the CEO of Pivot Financial. Jennifer has an incredible background in housing finance that spans from Wall Street to tech to origination and touched many other parts of the industry in that process. She built the first hedge fund issuer of AAA RMBS securities collateralized by newly originated loans. Really in- incredible story there, which we talk about in the episode. And now she's leading the market forward again with a multi-dimensional aggregator and asset management business. Jennifer is a true housing leader. She was a housing wire woman of influence in 2023 and had previously been recognized as a housing wire vanguard. In this conversation, I lean into her expertise and get some advice on questions for some of the keynote speakers at Housing Wire Annual. You're not going to want to miss this event. You're not going to want to miss this part of the conversation. I hope you enjoy this knowledge, this incredible episode and interview with Jennifer McGinnis, CEO of Pivot Financial. All right, Jennifer, I love when our guests have interesting backgrounds. I, I like it even more when I can see a subtle hint of a, a housing wire logo in a black frame on your bookshelf behind you. What's what's going on in that black frame? You know, I'm not shocked that you, Clayton Collins, noticed that behind me. So um, believe it or not, that was handed to me shortly after Windwater released its first uh, AAA rated Jumbo Prime securitization in 2014. And um, I was the head of the deal team there. And we were actually the first hedge fund issuer of residential mortgage-backed securities with a AAA rating collateralized by newly originated loans. And the reason it's the Housing Wire article, at least the reason the person told me that was, you were the first one to put it out. So a pretty cool legacy there, Clayton. That's incredible. So that's back to- That was 2014. So that's nine years ago. That was 2014. Pretty, pretty incredible. So tell me, let's let's go back to that time period. Um, this is the wind water securitization. Tell me like where, where, tell me about the hedge fund. Tell me about where you were in your career. I want to, I want to hear the story around that point in your career. And then, then we'll go deeper into where you are today. So at the time we had actually recently left Deutsche Bank, um, the hedge fund was started in 2009, you know, shortly after the housing crisis. And candidly, we took advantage of the discount on a vast array of RMBS and other structured financial instruments, and then went back into the loan business. Um, we built a conduit aggregator called Windwater Home Mortgage. Again, I told you we were jumbo prime focused, and we decided we were going to be the first hedge fund to get that done. You know, candidly, a lot of guys had tried before us, and they got the same feedback from the lawyers. The tax code says blah, 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 and they had given up. Well, the one thing you'll learn about Jennifer McGinnis, the more you get to know me, is um, I usually read what they say says that we can't get it done. So we literally opened up the tax code and the other regs that they were referencing to us from our very highly paid law firms and read them. And by reading them, I said, I don't see where it says we can't. And I literally went back to the law firms and said, Tell me why I can't. Looks like I need to be a, build a structure to be able to do it, but this structure is achievable. 
I talked them through what I was thinking and we literally got it done. And it was a really, really cool time period. So it's actually one of the things I uh, look back on and say, hey, that was a really cool experience. I'm glad I got to do it. So it wasn't, so that's funny to me or crazy that the hurdle was your own legal counsel, not necessarily the rating agency. So how did- I wouldn't actually say the hurdle was my own legal counsel. It was the regulation that they were pointing to. Okay. Um, But with that said, you know, I think that people take feedback regularly of, you know, just a citation, you know, from law or reg, and then they go, okay, we can't. You know, one of the reasons why I built what I run today is because I got sick of that. Do we need 985 sign-offs to do everything? And let's be, you know, creative and detailed. And, you know, that's been the crux of my entire career, even in the larger organizations. So that was a really cool moment in time. Sometimes creativity is what brings the market forward. And I think that's important. How did like the jumbo prime securitization market change after you were able to get this securitization into the market with the AAA rating? And like, how has that market um, behaved since this, this issuance in 2014? Well, I mean, a lot of things have happened between 2014 and 2023. You know, the jumbo trade was definitely a good one, right? But you'll hear me say also when we talk about pivot, Why I created this is I got sick of creating multi-billion dollar trades, right? I wanted a proactively reactive business. And the jumbo trade at the time was a great trade. But I think that a lot of organizations focus on a product or a type of offering. And multi-strategy mortgage products is really the right answer. You know, fast forward a couple of years past 2014, there wasn't as much AAA interest in jumbo because spreads tightened. Yep. Right. Fast forward again, Jumbo got popular again, and then the same thing happened again. A lot of it is cyclical, which is why you want to have diversified product offerings and also opportunities in your businesses. Do you think Jumbo will behave as cyclically going forward when you take into account the home price appreciation that we've seen in the last three years and the percent of homes that are in market that command a jumbo product to enable somebody to transact? Maybe, maybe not, right? I think I maybe think maybe that not. the market yeah. we sit in today is an interesting one. I think we absolutely are missing a supply component. One, because of rate increases. Two, because candidly, enough housing stock doesn't exist. You know what I mean at the moment as well? So I think a lot of variables are in play right now as to what's going to happen with housing in general and what the right mortgage products are going to be. You know, I think there's a lot of believers also in the borrower space that rates are going to go down. And I don't, you know, sometime in the future. And I don't think investors disagree. It's just when, right? So I do think there's a real opportunity to bring certain other product structures to market that may actually be a better structure than a standard jumbo arm or fixed loan, And um, I'm excited to see what happens when we do that. I think there's real opportunity there. So Jennifer, your your career path has led from large global banks to hedge funds, market research, origination, investing. Um, So you have a full view of the housing economy and, and financial economy. How do you think about the the rate environment that the housing industry should prepare itself for in the the, the coming year? And and how do you think about 
um, the current market dynamics or rate environment as you build your business that today is Pivot Financial? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, you know, we've seen an unprecedented expediency to the rate rise over the course of the last 12 plus months. I mean, at this point, we're up, what, 525 basis points from where we were. And I have no doubt that we're going to see probably at least one more 25 basis point increase, right? But with that said, this is not the height of where rates have been historically. I mean, when I started my no. career, and we won't talk about what year that was, but I'm clearly not 18 <laughs> years old anymore or 20, um, you know, rates were a lot higher than this, right? Like my parents' first mortgage loan had like an 18.5% interest rate, right? Do I think we're going to get back there? No. Do I think we're going to be doing, you know, 9% loans, you know, for the next 36 months without rate change? Absolutely not. Rates will, in my opinion, begin to come down. The question is going to be when and by how much and how much time will it take to equalize to something that'll be longer term. But I think we're still not at the finite peak of where the Fed's going to go yet. But the good news is that 25 basis points I'm talking about, generally the street's pricing it in. Yep. So it's already there. So the street's dealing with a few dynamics. We're, we're pricing um, with a, a spread or a margin over over the 10-year. And that margin is, is higher than a lot of people hoped it would be, which we believe is influenced by a few factors. Fed's not buying mortgage-backed securities. We have a flood of banks, failed and performing banks that have flooded the market with MBS. How do you think about the pressures that are driving rates to where they are today? And what do you anticipate like in, from a capital markets perspective of those pressures alleviate? Do we see more buyers in the market? And how does that change the, the rate environment? I'm going to take your question in two components, right? So, um, you know, let's rate environment wise, affordability is key for borrowers, especially in residential housing. And, you know, for certain people, affordability is upside down right now, right? The spread on the 10-year is another issue, right, from a dynamics perspective. But there's also a gap between how the Fed thinks about inflation versus then what the impacts are to the mathematical numbers, right? When you look at the CPI index, right, for example, they don't actually use mortgage-related cost in the CPI index. They use an estimate of rent of what it would cost for that homeowner to rent their own house, right? And those numbers are not necessarily aligned, as an example. In addition, you know, it's funny, I put a post out on LinkedIn today, because now we're moving into the semantics of little numbers, right? 0.6% increase over month over month between July and August on CPI from, you know, June to July, 0.2, right? And what nobody pays attention to is BLS actually puts out a report every year of the plus or minus error percentage in their CPI numbers. You know, back in 2022, if they make a quarter point mistake, no big deal. Now it's a big deal and we should actually be looking at it. The question is, is the Fed looking at it? Are they thinking about those historical error rates as well when they look at this math? The other thing is, you can't get up-to-date data on transactions in real estate and whatnot in real time. Because why? The United States national footprint, depending upon the area, the mortgages, for example, could take up to a year to become of record. 
In another area, it could be two days. So even if you were tracking, you know, real-time transactional-based data, there's no way to normalize it. So there's always a delay, okay? And what I bought last month, I can unequivocally tell you that by the 13th of September, I doubt that Walmart and other large big chain stores really know what people bought finitely or that they've even finished their financials. So how can the CPI monthly truly have final numbers for the month of July or even August when it comes out on September 13th, right? So I think all of those things need to be taken into consideration. Yeah. So like you're, you're pointing at the, the nature of decision makers, whether they're Fed leaders or business leaders that have to make decisions with imperfect information or, or gray information, which might be one of the reasons we've all been so frustrated with some of the rhetoric out of the Federal Reserve because it, it's vague, because uh, they are working with imperfect information. Um, but maybe there's a, a bigger, uh, too high of an expectation that that 0.06 movement in inflation should be something encountered, taken into account in a decision-making process. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the reality is it's not only the Fed that works with yeah. imperfect data. Everybody does Absolutely. in the markets. And the real skill is the devil in the detail of understanding where we've been and where we're going, right? Where a lot of people like overreacted when rates started to rise, right? My team, I looked at them and I literally said, sit still and let's see if they really do it this time, right? Why? Because there's been a hurry up and wait multiple times since the housing crisis. We're going to raise rates, et cetera. Let's see what's going to happen. So you actually, you actually have to do that and be contemplative and not overreactive, I think, you know, a great example of that also was when everybody overreacted during COVID. Do you remember the overnight devaluing of non-QM? 100%. Right? Yeah. Okay. A- April, May 2020 were a nightmare. Loan. assets overnight. Look where non-QM is today. Right? You don't, you don't get that level of correction, right? Unless there was an oops that was made yep. slightly before that. You know what I mean? But capital markets do react, and what killed non or harmed non QM very seriously in Q2 2020 was private capital coming off the table or at least pausing. And now we're in an environment where we're starting to see the GSEs act on um, act with the availability of capital or or their show their risk appetite, and we're seeing that risk appetite come through as they push on repurchase demands. How do you think about the repurchase environment that we're, we're operating in today? So I have actually been the head of breach three times, once for a large investment bank, once for an aggregator of distressed assets, and also for a hedge fund, right? And here's what I could tell you. In being on the receiving end and also the breaching party, putting back loans, from being on the receiving end, especially in the larger organizations, you know, the claims that come to you do not actually tell you what the real breach reasons are. They're generally allegations, and most people, when they receive them, attempt to fight them and actually create the breach issue for themselves. So if you get a GSE repurchase claim that says, we do not believe the valuation is supported, what's the natural question a lender should be asking? Why not? Instead, a lender goes, dissects their own appraisal, right? 
comes up with a great reason why the value is supported and usually uses different comps than what's in the actual appraisal. Now you've given the GSE a reason to believe that that valuation is not supported. What really should happen is, thank you, GSE, for your letter. Kindly advise why you believe this valuation is not supported. As soon as we receive those follow-up details, we will respond on this claim. See how many times you're going to get a detailed assessment of that loan from the GSEs. Now, I'm going to tell you, if we flash back to uh, 2008, et cetera, and my prior life and my prior seat, let's just say my rescission of claim withdrawal rate with GSE repurchase demands was very high. So are lenders too... Is this an experience thing or a confidence thing or lenders really doubt the valuation of, of securities and they're like, they're nervous to ask for that backup material. That, that's, this is a, you know, it's, it's a pretty big statement. No, so, so it, it's not, yeah, it's, it's actually the loan, not yes, the correct, securities sorry. themselves because the claims are, you know, with regard to an individual mortgage loan, but you have to understand that the experiences, and remember I've sat in the actual lender. If you push back at the GSE, the GSE will say, no problem, we'll put your account on hold for acquiring any additional loans until these claims are resolved. And that's not really what the tenor of the GSE or, quite frankly, any aggregator should be. They should allow for the issue to actually be reviewed and resolved. In addition, I'm going to make an unpopular comment, but it's a legitimate one. Why are people putting back loans that are contractually current? Right now, if a borrower is making payments on their underlying loan, you have no risk of loss. If you really believe there's a material issue or a breach issue on that loan, take an indemnification from the lender, okay? If you suffer an actual loss, right, I am very sure the lender will sign up to pay you, okay? But this is not the same rodeo that we were in circa 08. So much overregulation exists in things that are the most important, such as valuation and things like that, where most of the loans originated today, emphasis on most, I didn't say all, will actually not suffer a material loss, right? And if you really throw back to the housing crisis, what was the key component that really drove if you took a loss or not? Okay, value and borrower willingness to make their payments if the value of their home went down, right? So value is key. So what I say to the guys putting back loans, right? Those loans are contractually current. Even if the lender agrees that there is a breach issue, take an indemnification. Now, the follow-up argument, Clayton, that I'm gonna get, right? Is how do we know that the lender will exist? Well, how do you know that this borrower will ever default? So why should the lender be taking a loss now for something that you may never realize? And Dave Stevens just wrote an op-ed op for us in the last week where he talked about the the number of loans that are actually performing where buybacks are being requested. And he, he also brought up the topic of the reason the GSEs are pushing right now is because the, the fear that some of these lenders may not exist on the other side of the cycle. And it becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the lenders that are getting pressure from the GSEs right now are, are barely... I don't know, break, breaking even, not, not lending profitably and then being demanded to buy back, um, 
loans with resources they they don't have. So it becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if lenders aren't armed with the strategy to handle these breach requests tactfully. Yeah. And I mean, look, I agree with Dave on that, right? So just so you know, I think it's ridiculous that the IMBs are generally the target for these things. And you know what? The GSEs should not be able to legislate and quite frankly, any aggregator, even non-agency, okay? So let's not only vilify the GSEs, but that's the topic, right? They shouldn't be able to legislate who does or doesn't survive in a market like this. And by virtue of this level of repurchase demand and also candidly threat to be turned off by a GSE or something like that, they are putting those lenders in a situation where they're going to have to make a decision as to if they say a going concern or not. That's not actually what's supposed to be happening here, okay? When you're buying a loan from a counterparty that qualifies for your eligibility requirements to an aggregator, be it a Fannie, a Freddie, a Ginny, or even us, right? Uh, any of the other ones out there too, or even a trading desk. Today, they're making reps and warrants to you and attesting in their purchase advices for every loan they sell you that they are still solvent, okay? If you're the one that puts them out of business, why aren't you taking some of that risk, right? The risk when you buy loans is that you're supposed to be an investment manager. If you don't know how to manage your own risk, don't buy loans, right? It's one of the reasons why Pivot has the asset management division, right? We have a true servicing oversight, loss mitigation, optimization business line for both our portfolio and others, right? Make sure that the loans are serviced prudently and correctly. That is true asset and portfolio management. It is not the lender's fault if your servicer screws up, but you'll find a reason in a breach of rep and warrant claim that will be overly vague when you send it to the IMB. And that is not how this business should work. Phenomenal information, Jennifer. So Jennifer, we're getting ready for Housing Wire Annual and Sandra Thompson will be speaking at the event. As we talk about current market dynamics, repurchase risk, what would you want to hear from Sandra as it relates to her view on, on regulating the GSEs, which are you know front and center in the conversation we're having right now? I would like to hear her put an actual process in place to identify if true breaches exist and send documentation to the lenders to support the allegations made in these claims. I would also like to hear her say that during a prudent, timely manner in which a lender is working through the claim with the GSEs, that they will not be told that they will be turned off or paused to continue to sell loans to Fannie or Freddie. Okay. Well, I can't guarantee you're going to hear what you want to hear, but I can <laughs> support that um, Sarah Wheeler will I be listening to this conversation. I not going to hear what I want to hear, but you asked, so I have to tell you. <laughs> but, uh, but I can uh, assure you that Sarah Wheeler will be listening to this episode in preparation for, for that interview. Um, so, hey, maybe Sandra listens too and um, you know, it takes a- Sarah, you should ask that question, Sarah. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jennifer, as we- 
continue talking about independent mortgage banks, some of the some of the pressure we have seen consolidation in the industry, but it's not the con- consolidation that I think a lot of analysts, bankers, executives anticipated as we came into to 2023. M&A has actually been a little bit slower. There's been a lot of like kind of walkover deals and um and more kind of uh li- like lifeboats or life rafts than um than the M&A we expected. How are you defining or uh, kind of thinking about this M&A or consolidation market? And what do you anticipate as we look forward through the next few quarters? I think there's a lot of natural consolidation that will occur, which happens cyclically anyway. And then I think there are some consolidations that are purposely looking to become monopolies, you know, in a certain market and the manner in which they're depicted to uh, people optically versus the reality behind the scenes are very different, right? Um, And I think you've seen that in some very large consolidations of things like mortgage servicing rights and servicing, you know, certain lending um, programs, uh, lenders, um, other large investment vehicles, acquiring um, other investment vehicles, you know, um, the merger of two different funds or REITs, et cetera. So, you know, I think I think some of those are absolutely meant to monopolize, and some of those are absolutely meant to consolidate teams that maybe standing on their own will not survive the market we're in, but combined they and conjoined they will. Amazing. Well, Jennifer, this conversation has been spot on with with all the topics that we're bringing to stage and to the cocktail hours at Housing Wire Annual coming up on October 10th. I can't thank you enough for joining me for this conversation, this episode today. Your expertise is is, is just really unrivaled. And um, as we go into topics of talking about securitization uh, and, and really everything in mortgage lending, I'm actually intimidated with how I ask questions. I know you run circles around me in knowledge, but thank you for sharing that knowledge. It is really helpful. And I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Clayton, thank you very much for the high compliment. Not sure that I fully deserve it, but it's appreciated. And uh, looking forward to it. Can I say before we close, you guys have done an awesome job at Housing Wire. I've really enjoyed watching the metamorphosis and uh, what you guys have done and uh, keep it up. Hey, I, I appreciate that fully. And everything we do at Housing Wire is to serve the housing professionals and not possible without a strong community of leaders like you that join us for podcasts, talk to our reporters and and give us advice as we seek to, to serve this industry and get recognized as Housing Wire Women of Influence. So congratulations on your 2023 recognition. You are- Oh, thank early. you. I appreciate that. Actually, Clayton- in 2019, I was a Housing Wire vanguard. So again, we've had this longstanding Housing Wire relationship. So it's exciting. Yeah, I, our paths have crossed through many institutions and at points in, your, in both of our careers. So wonderful talking to you today, Jennifer. I will see you on October 10th. Have a great one. See you then. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas. 